Hello, passionate listeners and watchers. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are in the world right now. I'm so excited about my our guest today, Reverend Bill McDonald. Reverend Bill has had three near-death experiences. During one of his near-death experiences, he was embraced by the mother of the universe. He experienced future premonitions and visions of future personal and public events which have come true in his later years. He's an award-winning poet, author, inspirational and motivational speaker, film advisor, minister, artist, a Vietnam War veteran, including receiving the Purple Heart, and he is a mystic. This is his story and this is his passion. Reverend Bill McDonald, welcome to Passion Harvest. I'm so honoured and excited to have you on the show today. I've been online looking at your uh, previous interviews and I'm, I'm humbled by the company you keep and uh, by the sharpness and the uh, insight in your questions. So now I put pressure on you. Y on yes, now I'm feeling pressure. <laughs> um, Gosh, what I'd love to get started with is, and I know you've had three near-death experiences. My gosh, what a soul contract for that. I'm, which one would you like to start with? I know we have a time frame here, but I'm interested primarily, and I think the audience would be is when you met, as you call it, the mother of the universe, and you had your future premonitions, which is fascinating with near-death experiences. Well, there's bookends here. The last one and the first one, the first one gave me a preview of the next 50 years of my life. So it wasn't a life review going backwards. Mm -hmm. It was going forward. Opportunities, the future waiting. And the last one was, there ain't nobody had one like that. I mean, it is just, it's, it's out there and uh, it, it deals with, another whole realm because well we can talk about it so it depends on where we want to start let's my, start my, with the first do you want to start with the one when you yeah, the first one when you were younger oh my gosh this is yeah. getting more exciting by the minute how, so, how how did it happen and what did you experience well picture picture an eight-year-old boy uh never been away from home you know mama's boy and all that kind of stuff and all of a sudden boom i'm in a i'm in put in place in a hospital uh, parents leave, nobody comes back. I'm in an isolation ward because you've got communicable disease. I'm in the hospital one year. Now think about that. Wow. That's... Nobody's in the hospital a year. I mean, a year is a long time for it's... no accidents or nothing, right? Yeah. So my, they, I overheard my parents, my stepdad and my mother talking to the doctors and they weren't very clandestine. They weren't very, it's like, I'm laying on a gurney, strapped in a gurney, looking up at ceiling light, and they're three feet away. And they go, you know, we don't, we don't give this much chance. You know, you might as well, you know, say goodbye. And you know, I mean, it was like, what, <laughs> what, what's going on here? So I had, I had about six or seven diseases compounding each other. You know, one falls into the other. You start to get sick, and then it cascades. Mm -hmm. You know, a lung, a lung disease, and a kidney disease, and and then communicable diseases. It was just, it was just my time to be sick. That's all. Wow. Instead of waiting individually to do all these illnesses, God's gift was, hey, let's get them all over with now. 
right? You're here, take it, embrace <laughs> it. We'll get it over with. So I go in there my first night and I'm by myself and they put me on this chair, metal chair, just in a hospital room. And they take these big needles. I don't know if you've ever seen needles that they use to, to go into your lungs to extract fluid. Gosh, no. This was 1954, 55, something like that. But they're big, huge needles. Of course, maybe they looked bigger when I was younger, but they were <laughs> big, you know, and they're jabbing these things in my back and they're pulling these fluids out. I mean, fluids are just coming out because I couldn't, couldn't breathe. And then they get through and they go get in the bed and they shut the lights off and I'm all by myself. First time, eight years old, totally by myself oh. in a hospital room. The nurse doesn't go, oh, are you okay? Can I Nothing. That's Nobody so traumatic. And, and being a child, nobody talked to me like a child. I'll sit here. All right, bend over. There was no small talk. So you got to picture that. I'm trying to give you a setting psychologically. Yeah. Because at that age, you know, psychologically, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on, right? So I'm laying there that first night. And I really was fading out. I mean, you know, things spinning, things. I'm not doing well. And they didn't, they were treating me like they didn't expect me to survive. I mean, nobody wanted to get attached. I think that was really it. Nurses, nobody wanted to get attached mm -hmm. in any way. So everybody was not doing anything personal for me. It was just like, boom, and they left. So I'm laying there. I have no idea because there's no clock in the room. Curtains are pulled. It's nighttime. Total darkness. And all of a sudden, I feel light. And there is a pun intended. Not only did I feel lightweight, but I felt the light. Right. I mean, it's like, people, what do you mean you felt light? Yeah, you could feel light. I mean, eight years old, I, I felt light. I mean, I, I could feel these rays. It was, the room started lighting up. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm not laying in the bed. I'm kind of sitting up. And I look down, it's even a dark room, but it's getting lighter. And I look down and I see the body of me. And even at that age, I'm looking at him saying, that's the body, but that's not me because I'm sitting up, right? It's yeah. like a quick, quick deduction. Yeah, that's not me. I'm, I'm sitting up. Here I am. And uh, then there's like clouds, you know, it's like, but it's bright. It's bright. Should have blind. I mean, she had dark glasses on. It was blinding, but it wasn't blinding. And I was feeling my spine was tingling, even though I'm having an out of body experience. I'm having a near death. That soul, even the soul, felt like I was having a vibration and where this where the spine would be because this make any sense me telling it now because it's like well you don't have I mean it's not a physical body but it kind of felt like there was energy in the spirit whether that was real imagined I don't know and you might have still associated with your physical body as well it, the etheric it, it, body so but it was like wow I, there, there was energy in that the, the spirit had energy and vibration yeah so all, all I could say was a vibration and then there was this array of visions of scenes, like somebody showing movies 
for a long extended period of my life. It's like, I knew it was my life. It wasn't like I'm looking at it for whatever reason. Nobody says, this is your life. This is your life coming up. No, it was like, I knew that was my life. If I went certain directions, I mean, there's always a freedom to change willpower and all that stuff, but pretty much it was lay it out. And as those things, I, I saw my wife, to be i mean eight years old right i met her in high school and, you, you, know. you saw her face uh, yeah or it, felt it, her resonance what, of some sort what, what, what would she look like in high school oh, you know so i met her i go yeah i married this lady it's just that actually we're still married by the way okay uh, we met each other at 14 she doesn't remember i didn't remember meeting you yeah yeah i saw you but we were in class together in the senior year but i i knew of her contrary to her belief that you know no i didn't know so we're both over 75, so that kind of gives you an idea. That's a long time to be with somebody, but I knew it was going to happen. I saw where I was going to live. I saw where I was going to work. But I saw these terrible scenes. I saw the Kennedy assassination. Uh, I, I saw, I didn't know it was Kennedy. Kennedy wasn't even anything in my mind at that, I mean, 1950s. Who knew Kennedy, right? But I saw it was a president, and I saw him getting shot in. Texas, why I knew it was Texas, I have no idea, but I knew it was Texas. Now, everything I saw was pretty accurate, but uh, the Warren Commission, when they did a study, they contradict what I saw. So in my vision, there was more than one person shooting. So I was wrong. Maybe I got that part wrong. The government says I'm wrong. So I'll just let it go at that. But in my vision, there was more than one shooter. And then I saw battlefields. I didn't know it was Vietnam. I didn't have any clue where French Indochina was at. I didn't know about the French fighting the, uh, the Viet Cong then, nothing. But I saw helicopters, which I recognized later as Hueys. They weren't even in, being used then, really, in the 50s. So I saw the helicopters, and I saw my place in that war. And I knew that by me being there, I was going to save the life of some children, which turned out to be true because I ended up later on when I got into that situation in Vietnam and I was ordered to fire from a helicopter on this, looked like the enemy was 30 something children and a priest. And I was charged with mutiny because I refused to fire. Then when they discovered what, and you know, they dropped the charges, but nobody gives you a medal for, for committing mutiny and saying, no, I ain't doing that. Anyway. So, I saw all these things. I saw the future. And while I'm watching that, the strange thing about it was there's two numbers that were flipping around. A two, nine, 29, and then the two would kind of flip. You know, you take a, 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 a two and you kind of flip it around, it looks like a backward, looks like five. Mm -hmm. So it was like 59, 29. So. I didn't know what that age would have meant. At times I thought, well, maybe I'm going to die at 29 or have a close call. Maybe I'm going to die at 59. I don't know. Somebody later on said, oh, no, that's your Saturn, you know, 29, almost 29 years, almost 59 years. All right. So I just set that aside. And for the next 50 years of my life, until I was 58 and a half, all those scenes that I had, it was like living deja vu. I mean, 
oh yeah okay i've been here i know what's going to happen it's so it was it takes away a little of the edge in your life when you know like in battle well i know i don't get killed here because i got these other scenes later on right so you could be a hero in battle when you know you're invincible you know they're not going to get you right bullets are going around i got blown up got shot by machine gun helicopter crashes i know it's okay because I know, because I've seen it. So, making a long story short, because we got three of them, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you here. So that was the the first taste of of that. Realized though that I was having out of body experiences. I was meditating, started at two two and a half years old. Far as back as I can remember, I've been meditating, doing yoga, making up my own techniques. I thought I was making them up until I actually went to. When I was two years old, I was making stuff up like I was taking my fingers, I was pushing my eyes so I could see my spiritual eye. And I, I put my thumb in my ears and closed the sound and I hear the ohm. And I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff like that. And then I was visualizing energy coming through my navel and air circuit. I mean, all kinds of stuff that on my first trip to India, I met this Tibetan monk who didn't speak English. I didn't speak Tibetan, but he took a hold of me. And he sat me down and he spent three days teaching me the very things that I already was doing at two years old, except I didn't know they had a name yeah. and I didn't know there was such a thing. So anyway, that was the, so I'm telling you, there wasn't a vacuum. Having the near-death experience for some people would be life-altering, life-changing. For me, it was. This is your life the, ahead of part you. Part of the bread. What, yeah, I it mean, was just me. That's, you, you consider it obviously a gift seeing these future visions and premonitions. I've always had visions. I've always had premonitions. I've, well, for example, as, as a child with my little sister, who's now got dementia, and I, so I, it's sure to know who I am anymore. But when she was little, three, four, five years old, we would lay out behind her house on a little hill and we'd have a contest, you know, who could dissolve the cloud? the quickest, you know, and you sit, focus on a cloud and you dissolve it to nothing, right? Or you move it. Oh, I've never done that. That you, sounds like fun. I've never it, done that. That, that sounds like fun. Do. No, it really is. It's just a matter of focusing. It's like a mic. It's like a magnifying glass. You can have light go through it. It doesn't do anything. But if you pull it back and you focus that light, you can heat up and start a fire. Well, same thing with your thoughts. You're looking at that cloud, you're actually focusing and you're actually heating up that cloud. It's just moisture, right? You just, you can evaporate it, you can move it. Anyway, it's just it's a stupid little trick I learned as a kid. So I come out of that hospital and I, I, I saw the future and I realized uh, I better take care of my body. So when I got out of the hospital, I became a vegetarian, the only one in my family vegetarian. In 1950s, early 50s, being a vegetarian was very, very difficult to do. I mean, extremely difficult. There was no, you couldn't go get a, a fake hamburger at McDonald's. or <laughs> There was no vegetarian pizza. There was no vegetarian. I mean, it was nothing. So consequently, you eat a lot of veggies and pasta, right? Pasta, you know, from, my mother was Italian. All right. So that changed the course of my life because not only did I become a vegetarian and, not, and, and meditating daily, and I also, 
decided I'm not going to do drugs of any kind. I'm not doing alcohol. I, I went 50, 50 years after the hospital and I found myself at the end of my predictions. There I was in India with no roadmap. When I went there with a friend said, you go wherever you want, I'll just follow you, right? And we end up hiring a car. We end up finding the ashram that takes care of Babaji's cape, the place where this sacred event, this, this reintroduction to Kriya Yoga happened. And, uh, and so I went there and it was, there was no guides, no nobody. The, the Swami that was running the place says, if you want to go there, you're on your own because I don't have any guides. Everybody's going to Ranchi for a, a convocation, including himself. He was going to leave in a day or two. So if you want to go, you got to go. And I'm going to give you some crazy directions. If you can find it, great, you're on your own. He didn't think I'd find it. And I said, look, I've waited 50 years to get here. I'm going to find it. So we left the next day. Our driver followed the instructions. were go down the road about 35, 40 miles, maybe 28 miles. I didn't know. But eventually you'll see a road, not the first road, maybe the third, maybe the second. Take it to the left and then go down that road till it ends. So we go down. I go, ah, okay, go here, go there. We pulled off the road. And we found that all the signage and all the trails uh, were, were gone. And there was a whole bunch of trails going up this mountain to Babaji's cave. Anyway, make a long, long story shorter. We, we, we got lost going up this mountain. It's in the Himalayas trying to find the cave. I was suffering from uh, some kind of dysentery. I was having great trouble. Uh, I lost 20... 20 something pounds in my first three weeks in India. Gosh. So I was, I was weak. And then I was actually dealing with um, epilepsy. So I was having these seizures. So I was kind of having kind of like a half seizure walking up that mountain. And then my heart was going. And uh, one of 12 major heart attacks I had. <laughs> so, my gosh. Okay. Anyway. So I'm wow. going up the hill. We finally, we finally we finally make it to the top. We find there's a temple there. We go in there and we meditate. But I'm exhausted. I go into the, the Babaji's cave. And when I go in there, I got this type list, printed list off my computer, both sides, 10 Adisha, small print. Every name of everybody I ever met army buddies, high school friends, enemies, old bosses, family, strangers. Uh, the hitchhiker I picked up in 1990, I had stuff like that written there. I figured God knows who they are. But I had all these people on there, named or unnamed. And my idea was, I'm going to Babaji's cave and I'm gonna meditate and I'm going to read these names and ask for a blessing for all these people that have crossed my path. It was like pages of these. I later took that when I finished the end, the end of that little thing. Later, I was on the Ganges River at sunrise after I'm taking this list, all these sacred holy places. And at sunrise on the Ganges, I read it the last time and I set it on fire, burned it till it was just down to my fingertips and I dropped it and it flew down, down the river, I guess, to Calcutta. And uh, 
so that was my mood. But while I was in the cave meditating, it was just beautiful. I was feeling my heart just going crazy and I was dizzy. So we left there and I got lost again trying to find, and we ended up totally out of the way. And I'm standing on a, a cliff, 30 foot cliff. And it wasn't sheer drop, it kind of went. So when I did become unconscious and I did fall, gracefully I was able to bounce two or three times before I landed on a boulder looking oh up at the gosh. sky. And I'm looking up at the sky. And then, then I notice the sky's getting closer. <laughs> it's like, what? So I look down and there's my bodies laying on a rock, eyes open, not blinking, just laying there. But there was, it was dead. There was no, nothing going on there. And, uh, but I'm looking down at it and I'm going, well, that's cool. Okay, been there, done that before. I mean, I made it to Babaji's cave. That was my goal 50 years before. I made it to the cave. I got to experience it. Okay, if it's time to go, that's all right, right? So while I'm watching this, I, uh, I look down and there's a very large cobra. I don't think there's anything shorter than a large cobra. They're all large, right? Gosh. Large cobra. So this large cobra is slithering across my ankles and my feet. And it was like a defibrillator going to my heart and spine. It was like, <laughs> boom. And I jumped up and uh, I tried to grab the snake, not from a threat or fear, but pure love. It was like, I loved that cobra snake. It was, it was a love that motivated me jumping up. I jumped up, took a breath. My heart was working. Everything was working. I was back. I chased the snake to a little waterfall, slid the behind the waterfall. And all, all it was, it was a wonderful experience, but that was just a little incidental thing. So when I, I come back and, uh, to America, you know, being a typical guy, you have a heart attack, you fall off a cliff. You think you would then go to a doctor. That happened in October. I stayed in India till, till November. And I didn't go to a doctor for my heart until the end of January. Can I ask you a quick couple of questions about the first two? Sure. <laughs> well, I've got more, but I'll just ask you a few. Very interesting about your future visions or premonitions. Are there any that are yet to unfold that you saw? Well, that was for 50 years. Those all, all happened. Mm -hmm. But I get, it's endless, the visions. Figuring out what's going to happen, is, it's, that's a piece of cake. Anybody, anybody can see the future. It's here now. All you have to do is, sounds crazy, but it's really, yesterday, the past, the future, now, it's all running. If this was a VCR, let's go low tech. This was a VCR tape. Remember those, right? Maybe you're not old enough. VCR, yes, I am, but thank you for the compliment. <laughs> a blockbuster, right? You get if you brought a, a video home and you put it in the machine and it was in the middle. The guy didn't rewind it. You go, well, well, how come this guy's going to jail? How come his wife left him? What's going on? You know, because you didn't see the beginning, but you didn't also see the end where everything works out, right? 
So life is like a VCR tape. It's already there. It's just a matter of sliding, sliding to take a look at it. So yeah, we could talk about that on another interview if you want, but there's future is easy. In fact, my new book coming out, which will be my next book, is called I Still Remember Tomorrow. Great and title. I, literally. Uh, it's getting harder to remember tomorrow because, <laughs> you know, it's hard to remember where I left my car keys. But uh, knowing future things, piece of cake. Knowing what I have for breakfast today, a lot harder. So <laughs> as you get older, the future's still easy. Anyway. So, I mean, uh, if you can remember the past, you can remember the future because it's already ha occurred. It's all occurred. Just a matter of just looking in. Where do you want to look? And do you have a technique to do this? Yeah, but uh, yeah, let's just let it go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a lot of things I do, like I've been accused of being a healer. I tell people, no, God is a healer. I don't heal. Uh, but there's techniques and things that I've self-discovered uh, that work. Uh, and I'm finding out that things I think I self-discovered when I was young, <laughs> I find out, oh, that's what that's, that's the theory behind that. That's why that works. But the bottom line is love is what heals. Love is what changes everything. Love and forgiveness. Without those, all techniques in the world aren't going to do you any good. But just, we're not here to just go around indiscriminately healing people and seeing the future. That's, that's entertainment. And that's, you think you're helping, but you have to have the wisdom to know when that's helping when you're interfering with somebody's karma. There's a lot involved there. It's not just a simple thing. So end of January, I collapsed. I was having trouble. I told my wife, I said, you know, I'm not feeling too good. I think I'm going to drive to the hospital. Sure, you're okay? I go, yeah. You know, guy, I'm having a full-blown heart attack. My I drive seven miles to the Kaiser. I, I, I get there, find a parking spot. I walk across this large parking lot, still having a heart attack. I get inside the ER and I got 18, 20 people in line waiting to, to check in there. And it's slow. So I'm waiting very patiently, having a heart attack. I mean, it's, I'm not saying nothing. I'm not complaining. I get up there to hand me a clipboard. Of course, what's the first question they ask you? They don't say, or you're having a heart attack. First question they ask you is, do you have insurance? <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, I just happen to have insurance here. So there, I go back and I fill all the paperwork. Then I go to another line that there's maybe six or eight people in. And I get finally handed to this nurse. And she looks at it and she says, since here you're having a heart attack. She goes, how'd you get here? I said, I drove. You stay in that line? Yeah. Okay. How long did this thing start? I said, hours ago. Yeah. Okay. I'll be the judge of this heart attack. So she puts her stethoscope in and then she listens to my heart. She goes, oh my God, you have an heart attack. Next thing there's this white alert, yellow alert, black alert. I don't know, some kind of code, code this. Next thing you know, somebody's throwing me in a gurney, strapped me down. Or, take it all they said, you're having a heart attack. I said, I'm just like this. I go, yes, that's why I came in. I told you I was having a heart attack. But yo, sir, you're really having a heart attack. Oh my gosh. So I go in and the doctor's, he wants to cut, he wants to do everything, right? And I said, you know, I said, what kind of deal is this? I said, I'm a vegetarian. 
Uh, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do caffeine. Don't do nicotine. I don't do sugar. I don't do salt. I mean, I go to this whole stuff. I meditate. I exercise. And he looks at me. Remember that 29.59? And he looks at me and he goes, you know, Mr. McDonald, if you hadn't done all that, I would guess from your genetics that you'd probably been dead at 29 instead of getting ready to have your 59th birthday next month. By virtue of me changing my diet from looking at those visions forward and setting up a lifestyle that was conducive to a healthier body, I overcame that liability of having this, you know, body that was ready to do things, you know, DNA wise genetics i'm so weak they put me in icu for four days just to get my strength up to be uh there for open heart surgery so they tell me they're going to do open heart surgery they're going to cut open the i don't know if you know anything about open heart they cut open your rib cage they disconnect the arteries they collapse the lungs they hook up your your arteries to a machine and it oxygenates the blood so you don't have to breathe and you don't have to have a heart pumping. So in all essence, you're dead. The machine is keeping you alive. The machine is keeping the body alive. But you're not breathing and your heart's not beating. I mean, literally. So in an essence, it's kind of like death, right? Yes. It's, so that's what I'm told before I go in there. And the guy goes, says, oh, I just want to warn you, though, that I asked him about the anesthesia. He said, well, you know, there's only about less than 5% of the people because we, we can't give you that much uh, uh, anesthesia when you're on the heart-lung machine. He says, yeah, we got a few people say they feel some. You, just by him saying that, I knew that was going to be me, right? Yeah, great. All right. So he gives you the shot. I count down from 100. I get to about 97, 96. And I'm gone. I left my naked little body laying on a ice cold metal table with the thinnest of sheet on it that was chilled to all of a sudden I'm not there. And it wasn't like my other near-death experiences were, you know, I'm kind of like this, I'm astral traveling or I'm traveling in spirit or something. I'm not traveling in spirit. I'm actually manifesting a physical body in Southern India. I find myself standing in a square, a patio kind of thing, brick and stuff, and a courtyard. And I look around and I, and I know this is Southern India. I don't know how I know, but I know. And I look over at the temple and it's got one of those, you know, it's got the, the bull looking in, you know, at the temple. Like, well, that's a Shiva temple, right? And then I, the, the, one of the first thoughts I have when I'm, when I'm there standing in the, in the square is, Last time I saw my body, I was butt naked. So there's a part of me that's a little bit modest. I kind of look around. I go, oh, I got, I got clothing on. So I figure, well, you know, it's my experience. My experience, I'm modest. I got clothing on, right? I, I left the other body with no clothing, all cut up. Were you still I, Bill? You, did you still identify as Bill? Yeah, absolutely. It, wasn't, it was not a non-me. Mm -hmm. It was me. But it was also me on the operating tables. It was two me's. Wow. That's why this experience is totally different than your normal. Uh, I've had 
two body experiences before. We could talk about that on another show. But so it's not unusual for me to have this happen. But it was in these circumstances, it was kind of odd because there I am transported a long ways away. And so I saw the hill. And I said, you know what? The operation is going to take six to eight hours, they told me. I might as well walk up this hill, right? What else am I doing, right? So I walk up the hill. And when I get to the top, it wasn't a mountain mountain. It was like a hill. And I get to the top, and there's some tree stumps and a log laying down and some rocks. And there's a sacred fire going. And there's all these guys with these crazy hairdos, you know, they look like they're all from Jamaica. You know, weird stuff, you know, weird beards. And, and I knew, well, this must be the Rishis, right? They're waiting for me. So I, I walk in, no big fanfare. I don't, hey, no high five. It just, I sit down on a rock and I don't ask a single question. I just sit down on a rock. And they're standing with the group off to the side with his arms folded as the guru that I was introducing when I was going around India, Gornoff. And he's standing there with his arms folded. He's looking at me and he goes, yeah, you can skip a few beats, but don't give up heart. And he kept saying that to me. I'm going, what, what, you know? Because when I'm having this experience in all honesty, there was a part of me that said, you know, if I go, it's okay. You know, because it's it physically it was very painful for me. It was, it was not, not, a, not a good thing. I was having some problems. And then I look up, remember those clouds on that first experience I had? Mm -hmm. Clouds in the, in the hospital room? Well, there's these clouds. And from these clouds and this light is the softest, most feminine voice. I mean, if you were a Hollywood producer, you, you couldn't produce that voice. It was just, it was beautiful. Um, sacred sensual would be a bad word because I don't mean it like that but it was just like an angel's voice she had this divine being had to be Irish that's why I said had to be Irish <laughs> anyway uh, so the voice goes Bill give up your heart stop breathing go you don't owe anybody anything you've, you've done everything you're supposed to do you don't have to help anybody anymore. You don't owe anybody anything. I promise you peace, bliss, joy, rest. You know, that's it. Just come with me. And so the guru standing there and goes, yeah. You know, being back with don't, you know, skip a few beats, don't give a part, right? And he goes, and I go, well, what do you got to offer? And he goes, more pain, greater pain than you've ever had before. I go, what? He says, more pain, more suffering. Because all your life when you had real great pain, you overcame it, you blissed out. You didn't have to deal with it. Just vanishes. That's not going to happen anymore. I'm going to make sure that you, you, you would endure your pain so you can teach other people how they can get rid of that pain. You'll have to learn how to do that. I'm going, well, that sounds really great, but you know, there's peace, bliss, joy, and you're promising more pain. So that wasn't enough. So then he kind of does this, and on those clouds, that light, that clouds, there's this panorama. So there's not scenes of things. There's a sea of 
more of an ocean of faces. Men, women, children, even a few dogs, a few cats, a few birds, a few animals, I don't know why, but it was souls, all ages. And it just kept thousands, thousands. And he told me, he says, if you go, these people will not receive the gift that you could give them. It may just be a gift of a smile, hope, inspiration, a healing, a teaching, friendship. You may stop a suicide. You may get somebody going on their own spiritual journey. All levels. But if you go, these people will not get the gift. You don't owe them anything. It's a gift. But if you go, none of these people will get anything. Even that wasn't enough. I'm going, really? no, you know, promise me more pain. You know, come on, you know, give me a break here. So I'm having this hassle going on. All of a sudden, while I'm standing that whole time, I feel like hands inside my body. That whole time I'm walking, it's like I feel people doing stuff inside me. So the body I'm in is feeling what the body on the table is feeling. And then all of a sudden, they jump-started the body on the operating table. And all of a sudden, I'm in India, and it's like, and I jump out of that body, and I'm on the operating table, buck naked, cold, in great pain because the anesthesia is worn off. And they've just started my heart again. They haven't you know, put my ribs together, haven't sewn all the stuff together. And it's got another 40 minutes or an hour to go to surgery. And I got a tube down my throat you know it felt like my eyes were taped shut i don't know if that's real or not but if i couldn't open my eyes i felt like they were taped shut i don't know if they do that or not i have no idea but that's what it felt like and i'm in my mind i'm going hey guys i feel everything give me a little you know something i'm feeling everything they're so doing. you're feeling all the pain of the operation all the including the staples in the chest and, and you couldn't scream or cry I, couldn't scream. I couldn't say nothing but I, oh my gosh it's almost an hour it's hard to tell time when you're laying there, but it felt like forever. It was an hour of pentacles. And then finally I'm in a recovery room and then they finally take the tube out and the throat's sore and everything. But so then over the next 10 days, I have five blood transfusions. It didn't go well. Suggestive heart failure, everything's filling up. I'm dying. And uh, every time I go to sleep, or I rest, or I nap, I have that, I'm back in India again. Full scale, my body is back in India, not a dream. I'm back in India again. I'm on the hilltop. I'm not walking up. I'm just at the hilltop. And I'm having that same conversation over and over. You could skip a few beats, <laughs> but don't give up heart, right? I'm gone. So it was like 10 days of that. Finally, I'm getting ready to go down for emergency procedure and it's like 10 30 or 11 o'clock at night and they got me on a gurney they're moving me out of my room out of my room and the phone rings i said i gotta answer that i gotta answer that and and they go no 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 i said no i gotta answer that i made a big stink and they gave me the phone and it's i heard this voice go Beal, this is gurnoff in india and i'm thinking in my mind i only know one gurnoff one gurnoff I mean, how many gurnoffs do I know? Yeah, that one. Oh, okay, yeah. great. So then the next thing he says just knocks me out. He goes, Neil, you could skip a few beats, but don't give up heart. 
And I'm going, what? What? And then he goes, just to get my attention, he goes, Bill, I'm just sending 100 people up to the Shiva temple at the ashram. I told them to go pray for you, energy, because I told them I was going to heal you. Now, you don't want to embarrass the guru, do you? And that was it. The end of the call, click. I'm going, I'm going away. So he pulled the trick. I, you know, wasn't enough I'm going to come back and help people. Wasn't enough I got grandchildren, wife. All, it was like, I'm going to embarrass the guru, so I better not die. Yeah, not a good way to end. So that, in a nutshell, trust me, everything I told you, I, I could spend three days telling those same stories because there's so many layers and so many edges to it. Bottom line, it's all about love. And every time I have one of these experiences or an out-of-body experience or, or anything else, it always comes back to love. Love is what makes it all happen. So I like to talk about anything else, but that's the near-death experiences. And, and you can see that pretty much takes up all your time. It does. We might have to have another episode. But just when you, meet, when you talk about love, do you mind just clarifying when you say it all comes down to love? What does that mean? I mean, we can answer, explore that a bit answered, more. Answered every problem, answered every question, the answer to everything. It's love. To be in the beginning, there was love, nothing else. Before light was created, before sound was created, before the darkness was dispelled, there was always love. And love is the creator. And when you love, truly divinely love, you become close. That's, that's when you get close to being in partnership with the creator. You already are one. You're just separated by your ego. But you're in partnership with the creator when you love and love others. And when you see all others as yourself. And if you see yourself as God as well, then you see God in everybody, including your enemies. And if you see God in everything and everybody, including nature, if you saw the ocean as God, how dare you pollute it? How dare you cut down those trees unnecessarily? You know, with no empathy and sympathy for that tree going down. Don't just, if you're going to use it for a house, bless the tree, pray for the tree, hug the tree. Don't kill it in anger or disregard. Everything, everything is alive, which gets me to one of my last videos I posted, if you got time for a short story, because this illustrates love and it illustrates healing. It's about, about a month ago, I bit into what was supposed to be a pitless prune or, or a date, I guess it was. And it wasn't. <laughs> it had a pit in it, and I broke three teeth. Oh, Boom. my gosh. You're a hard biter. Yeah, I just, <laughs> no, this looks really good. And it went, boom, three teeth. One of the teeth, because I got the x-rays, I got them posted, uh, half the tooth went down into the gum. It right directly into the into the uh, the nerve ending. So it was instantaneously nerve damage. So it was quite painful. But when things happen to me, I don't go, damn, darn, how come I'm a victim? You know, I got to get this. It was like, well, this is interesting gift God has given me. How will this turn out? How will this turn out, right? So I, uh, I just let it go to the universe, right? I tried dentist office and 
no dentist in California. Dentists are booked up. I mean, they're crazy. They don't even return a telephone call. So that was on a Wednesday. Finally, on Friday morning, after not sleeping two days and not eating because it's you know painful just to breathe, just the cool air would hit the nerve. And I go, I called some guy up an emergency number. I said, I don't know if it's emergency, but I got three broken teeth and I'm in pain. I called him up like five in the morning. He wasn't happy. Oh, so I show up, x-rays it, examines it. He looks at it and he goes, you're right. You got three broken teeth. And I go, doc, yeah, okay. I know that. That's why I came. So, well, yeah, when can you fix them? And he goes, this was over a month ago, right? We're in what, this is June? Uh, July 29th, maybe August. So I'll tell, okay, I'll deal with that. So I said, uh, all right. So I left. I go home and I practice something I learned when I lived in Hawaii. When I was talking to you privately earlier, I was talking mm-hmm. about, I was being tutored, mentored, instructed by an old kahuna. And he taught me about everything, everything, including every part of your body has spirit as intelligence and responds to love and responds to hate. So if you hate a part of yourself, you could cause illness. If you love parts of yourself, you could create just the opposite. So, so I thought about that. I thought, you know what? I'm always telling people love heals. And everything else. So, but I wasn't looking for a healing because to me, God gave this to me, this injury. So I'm not gonna go to God and say, you know, I don't like your gift. You gifted me this, but I don't want it. Can we exchange it for something different? It's like, no, you gave it to me. I'll handle it. But I felt sorry for my teeth. So I kind of grabbed out of my jaw and I visualized my teeth and my gums. And I said, mentally, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I hurt you. I apologize. Forgive me for hurting you. Thank you for the wonderful service you've given me for 75 years. I love you. And I repeated, I love you, I love you. I don't know, minutes. Put my hands down and I was sitting in the chair. I think it was right here, actually. And I was sitting in the chair. And then I realized there was no pain. I don't know when it dissipated, but it was like, as soon as I started, I loved you sometime between then and when I thought about it, there was no pain. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I mean, it was still broken. Mm-hmm. There was no pain. So I called, I had an urge to call my friend in London. So I called my friend Steve in London, who I didn't know at the time had just terrible dental pain and he couldn't get into his dentist right away and he had to have his corrections and stuff done. So I just call him up and I go with the, with the video call and I go, Steve, let me tell you the story. So I told him the story, he didn't say anything. And, and then we hung up. And I talked to him a few days later. He says, you know, Bill, because when you were telling me that story about what you did, when we hung up about 20 minutes later, my pain went away. Then I told somebody on the East Coast, a woman, she was, had been complaining about her shoulder. It was like locking up. It was been pain for 10 years. After I hung up on her, a couple hours later, it was half gone. So it's just one thing after another on this whole thing, including getting appointments, getting it done when I'm supposed to go in. It was supposed to be a couple of root canals and maybe pull a couple of teeth out. None of that happened. 
was fixed in an hour. Boom, no big deal. No, not even a, a crown, just fixed. Anyway, so I, I did a whole, there's a lot more involved, deep stuff happened, money and everything else. So I did a video on that and I posted it within 12 hours. I had four people send me private messages that they got healed from watching the video. And I was disappointed because I wanted them to get healed because they did what I did. They just watched the video when it happened. So I'm telling no, do the video. I, it's not me. It's not my energy. It's do this. I want them to learn to self-heal. And since then, there's probably 40 to 50 people that have been in contact. It's only been up a couple, three, two or three weeks. But about 40, 50 people have been affected by that video. So by me breaking my teeth and going through that pain, it's inspired others and will continue to do so as long as it's on the internet and as long as you know people want to hear the story. So love conquered pain. Even though I did not ask for any healing, I didn't ask for anything. I didn't ask for a reduction of pain. It just, I loved my teeth and my teeth loved me back. That's such a beautiful story. And for anyone that's listening or watching, all your details will be in the show notes, but where, where can people find the video and where's the best? Okay, Reverend Bill McDonald, if you go to YouTube, you will find a, a channel. If you just go on YouTube and put Reverend Rev Bill McDonald on there, you'll find several hundred videos that other people have done to me, like the one we're doing now, but you'll also find 125 or so that I've done that are on my channel. But the other ones are out there, the great videos. And uh, if they want to go to my website, uh, which will take them all kinds of places, uh, www.rev, no dot, revbillmcdonald.com. And if they want to go to Amazon, they can find all my books uh, and uh, my new books coming out next year. Can I ask you two final questions? I, if, if, if you, <laughs> well, they're not simple questions, but they're just, just, I think, I guess, relevant, and I feel people will be asking them, what would you say to, well, it's very common, what would you say to people that are afraid of death? Afraid of death? Yes, afraid of dying. Here's the opposite of love that you know. I think a lot of people know that theoretically, but it really is the opposite. Uh, fear is like one of the most wasted energies, and it is an energy. It, it really, it's a negative energy, and it robs you. There is no death but then if you listen to me long enough you realize that i'll tell you there is no birth there is no incarnation therefore there is no reincarnation therefore there is no no dying and going on to the other because there's only one the creator this is all creator's dream but people can't handle that so let's just say you live you die you don't really nothing dies things change you change, you evolve. And I got a lot of stories that I could go into on that. But basically, there is no death. There is no death. There's a change of consciousness. And it's instantaneous. Mm. Anybody can die. In fact, everybody will die. There's nothing novel or unique about it. Oh, my God. If I die someday. Yeah, if you die someday. Everybody dies. I don't want to spoil the plot. A spoiler alert, no one's getting out of here alive. But you never really die. But you, 
I mean, who wants this? I mean, my body's not the same as it was when I was 21 years old. Come on, you're a 75 year old guy. It's, it's, I imagine the next 15 years is even going to get older if I, if I live that long. The reward for living longer is you get to live longer, but your body is, is not getting any rewards. No. So, uh, yeah, so death, where is thy sting? We are eternal beings. Yeah, it's, it's just an ongoing process. It's just from here to there. And my final question, I get this asked a lot. I'm sure you do as well, but what, why are we here? Why do we incarnate into our humanness? All right. So ultimately, what is your purpose? Because I mean, I, I just go down that thing. We're all Perfect. That, yep. So, I mean, we could say, well, what was God's purpose in creating us? And mm-hmm. that's a question I can't answer. But he did create us. Or she. We, or we think God. we're here. Or, or the light. Love created us. Um, I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking the only reason we're here is to learn to love, not be loved, but to love. And to love, that means you forgive, you serve, you give, you extend yourself, you expand your consciousness to include others and their welfare. And whatever level you do that, I don't care if you're a veterinarian, a police officer, military person, a teacher, a mother, you know, cable cable guy, whatever job and whatever place you're at where, where God has planted you, serve from there. You don't have to win a Nobel Peace Prize. You don't have to invent a cure for cancer. Just smiling for an unloved child being a friend to somebody, being there for an old person, picking up litter, helping clean the planet, mm-hmm. whatever your passion is, do it with love. Amazing, beautiful answer, and what a wonderful way to end the show. <laughs> I had to throw passion in. I'm sorry. Of course, no, that's... Talk about passion, so yeah, whatever your passion that's, is. That, that's great. <laughs> well, Reverend Bill, thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest, we might have to do another episode or we could do hundreds actually, but you have, you're such an incredible wealth of information. So thank you so much for being so open and honest today.